In this episode of 9 2 I Talks, Dick Wolf, creator of the Law & Order franchise, discusses his new CBS series, FBI, with stars Seal Ward, Jeremy Sisto, Ebony Noel, and moderator Vladimir Dutier. The conversation was recorded on February 20th, 2019, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. How's everybody doing? Can you hear me back there? All right, uh, so welcome to the 92nd Street Y. Uh, we are really excited today because we have not only members of the cast of FBI, who are here, but we have the legendary Dick Wolf, creator of FBI, and the longest running, one of the longest running television programs in American history, Law & Order. Welcome. The longest. Fake news already. <laughs> uh, my name is Vladimir Dutti. I'm a correspondent for CBS News, uh, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the 92nd Street Y for this discussion uh, with the cast and the creator of FBI. So I will briefly introduce everybody, although I don't think they need any introduction, but please give a warm round of applause to Ms. Celia Ward, <laughs> Mr. Dick Wolf. Jeremy Sisto, and Ebene Noel. All right. <laughs> so we're gonna make this a very fluid discussion. Uh, I'm going to ask the, the cast uh, a couple of questions, and then we will open it up to you. I know we have a lot of fans here, clearly, uh, because you paid good money to be here. Um, and so we're gonna first start off with Mr. Dick Wolf. Um, I don't know if you know this because, and maybe the audience doesn't know this because they're not glued to their phones the way that I am, but right before I left the CBS News Broadcast Center, news broke that a Coast Guard officer was just arrested, about, it happened about a week ago, but we're only getting the information now from the FBI, uh, was arrested with a large cache of weapons, and he had a target list of prominent politicians, mostly Democrats, I think all Democrats, and journalists that he was targeting. And in this little manifesto, and this is sort of still coming into me, so I may get some of the facts wrong, but the, the, the broad strokes of what we learned is that he was planning on taking some people out with those weapons. He was planning on using some kind of biological agent or weapon on food. And I remember as I watched this, and I knew I was coming to talk to <laughs> the creator of FBI, and I thought to myself, this is an entire episode of FBI in just one house that they found, right? This guy was gonna blow things up, he was gonna shoot people, and he was gonna spray food on a salad bar, which was, if you guys have been watching the show, is exactly what has happened over the course of this season. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> so my first thought was, I mean, these are, when I first started watching FBI, my first thought, Dick, was that this is a scary world that we live in. And what was your thought process into why you wanted to bring this show to the air? Well, it was three years ago, and we started dealing with... I want to use... Sorry. It was about more than that. Four years ago that we started dealing with the FBI where we had an embedded crew in the New York headquarters who literally were in there for a year shooting real agents, real situations, and every day it's a new warp, that there is, that 
the FBI has basically a zero tolerance for terrorist acts for the simple reason that it's, it's not a good day when one takes place. And their job is to be there and interdict and arrest and work against basically the worst people on the planet, uh, the need for, wherever you go in the world, the FBI is the foremost law enforcement agency. Um, it is unparalleled. It has offices all around the world. It is knowledgeable about thousands of people that you never want to even know exist. And the dedication, I mean, one of the things that I've pointed out to people in the whatever it is, 100 years of one version or another of the Bureau, uh, there has been one agent who was indicted for murder. And aside from that, there has never been an FBI agent uh, arrested for corruption or spying or anything that works against the larger interests of America. And they are, um, my uncle was an FBI agent and it was a very, uh, it was a very good role model, but it was also um, something that when I was a kid, it, it was I, five or six, I didn't know how anybody could do this job. And he was a hero. But if you look around at people who know agents, they are literally the best and the brightest. There's a 1% success rate for applicants to even get into uh, Quantico. So it's an incredible group of people from every walk of American life, every background. Um, it's a fascinating group of people who are totally dedicated. Yeah. Um, so from time to time, you're going to see me sort of fanboying over uh, the folks that are sitting here on the stage with me because I've been a big fan of yours and Law and & Order going back to the very beginning. Um, Celia Ward, who just recently played like the President of the United States right, <laughs> in Independence Day, um, but who I remember watching Sisters, fans of Sisters, right? Um, has won an Emmy, has won a Golden Globe. What, your character is really interesting. Um, what do you think about when you're playing Dana Mosier? What do you bring, what do you try to infuse the character with? Um, first of all, I, I love how strong this woman is and how good she is. And it's not because she's a woman, but I love that she's a woman and in charge in really predominantly a male world, thanks to Dick. He always puts women in, in great, strong leads. Um, I, yeah, you know, very much so. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to play a character like that because uh, you are directing men, you are in charge, you're dealing with uh, life and death, uh, you're dealing with hierarchy politically, and it's, uh, you try very, at least I try very hard not to, to, to veer away from the cliche, to um, walk a line of just a principled woman doing her best uh, with great integrity at a job. 
Is it, is it hard um, when you realize the world that we're living in right now, which is very different than it was maybe even five years ago with the rise of the Me Too uh, movement, the fact that women are demanding equal pay for equal work, and now you are playing a character that has an enormous responsibility over agents, both men and women? Um, I think that um, you know, it's, a, it's very, a very interesting time, not only because of the Me Too movement, but um, I think that women, particularly in television, now that you've seen this shift from features uh, being big blockbuster hits and you don't have any uh, of those really middle budget movies like you used to in, in um, great numbers anymore. So all the wonderful roles are on television for women and they are some fabulous roles. And I'm also looking at the art world and there's a resurgence of really looking at female painters and their influence where they've been unrecognized for so many years. And, and I'm just watching all of these cultural elements dovetail and thinking, wow, it is a time for women. And that's, that's really exciting. Yeah, time's up, as Oprah said. Um, Jeremy Sisto. I, you're this serious actor, um, he's done, you've played so many varied roles over the course of your career, but for those of us of a certain age, we remember Elton. Do you remember? <laughs> Who here is a Clueless fan? And I interviewed, right? I, I interviewed Amy Heckerling, and she had some very nice things to say about the time on the, on the set and everything, but um, I've been a huge fan of yours for many, many years. Um, your character is more complicated than I originally thought. When I first started watching the show, the first couple of episodes, I thought, okay, here's the guy who gets the information that something bad is happening out there and he marshals the forces uh, of the FBI to figure out what's going on. But then your arc has gotten a little bit more complicated. Tell I thought me. it was all about his pencil. <laughs> right, exactly, <laughs> exactly right. And it turns out that it's not. <laughs> it's a lot about the pencil. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, again, that's um, um, a quality of Dick's storytelling in, in that uh, you get to know these characters first in how they operate in their job. And, uh, and his job is complicated. It's uh, one of the uh, amazing things to me when I got to visit the FBI office and, and talk to the agents was how connected they are to all the other agencies in the city, how much respect there is given to them and how they have an ability to dig deeper than any other agency, uh, not only because of their connectivity to other agencies, but because of their own, uh, their own uh, agents and analysts within the Bureau itself. And so um, it's, but the, but the environment within that space is, there's a lot of camaraderie, it's a real family, it's a feeling of, you know, when we went to visit, they're giving each other you know, a hard time, they're teasing each other, they spend a lot of time together, they're in this office, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're grinding it out together, and, and that kind of relationship is super fun to, to sort of see. But uh, as I was saying with Dick's shows, there's, you see the characters first in how they operate, how they relate to each other when they're trying to get this job done. And, uh, and so when there are moments that you get to see who the character is, it's really gratifying, I think, for an audience. And uh, you know, um, what's what's the term you always use with a, uh, well, not with a, the small, with a tea, a tea, a teaspoon, or you oh, know, yeah. with a, you have some. We don't pour character into characters with soup ladles. 
demitasse spoons. Or That's right. I don't know that word, so I've always... Time. Yeah, you got to hold your pinky. you got to hold the pinky, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, it's fun It's fun for us, too. Um, and we've had a, t a few different uh, teams of writers kind of coming onto the show, and, and everyone sort of is kind of uh, operating through Dick, trying to find this, the, the voices, and, those, and each, each writer brings their own sort of ideas, and, and so Jubal has come together in a really interesting way. I think he's fun to watch, you know, he's got a lot of energy, um, and he, he does have, um, he's, he's starting to take form, his backstory is starting to take form to be a, a pretty intriguing character, so I'm happy to play him. D did you um, meet your, the real life counterpart who does your job at the FBI here in New York, and what was that like? Yeah, he's great. I've, uh, I hang out with him sometimes. He's a really cool guy. He's very funny, very... Um, uh, you know, he, he, it's funny, when you go out with, the, uh, the, when I went out with him, my observations were the hierarchy within the, within the bureau is, is clear. You, everyone knows who's above, but, but if you're watching from outside view, it, you can't really tell. It's kind of all, all sort of a subtle sort of thing. The way they actually relate to each other is, is uh, and this guy is sort of the epitome of that. He treats everyone the same, you know, he's self-deprecating and, and, and he's, you know, he's off the cuff the, the way he talks. It doesn't seem like... You know, he could be anybody on the street, but then, uh, but you also, if you watch him close enough, you see he has a, an ability to really um, uh, to to meet someone and to instill a sense of trust and a sense of, you know, uh, like knowing that person, a yeah. feeling of uh, disarming that person, and and so it's a really interesting guy. And this is a different character, but it was sort of inspired by that by him. Really fascinating, um, Ebene. Yeah. Um, I read an interview. I read an article somewhere where I you said that you, your character, Kristen, is the connective tissue of the squad. Yes. Just take me through that. Oh, wow, okay, well, <laughs> we have our two agents who are on the street and they're reacting first to whatever the event is of the episode. We have our boss who's sort of coordinating with the higher ups, making sure what needs to happen happens and directing us in certain ways. We have Jubal who's running the jock. And Kristen is able to look at the cases from um, analytical perspective to take all of these disparate pieces of information and find the connections. So we have two victims and we don't know how they're connected or why somebody might be motivated to go after them both, right? So her job is to take all of the information she can glean about those two people, run it back, um, turn over every rock, <laughs> check their profiles, do whatever she can to figure out how they connect, mm. right? And then to bring that information to the agents, to her boss, to Jubal, so that we can all get together and figure out what the next step is. So I know that you uh, have been educated sort of all over the world. Yes. But did you, were you, I mean, were you a techie before you took on this role? <laughs> or are you, not only did you have to go to, through like training at Quantico, but you also had to learn like all this technology that you're not familiar with? Well, I was not personally a techie, but I have um, two people who are very close to me. One, one of my best friends who's like complete science nerd, and then a friend from college who was really into um, computer analytics and programming. And, and just because I'm a curious person and I cared about them, I took the time to learn about what it is they're passionate about. Not because of this show, just through life. And then it ended up helping me with this show because I do use a lot of technical jargon and I have to talk about you know, how computers work, how the signals work, timestamps, how things are connected, and it just was sort of baked in, I guess. Yeah, that's cool. Mm. Um, Dick, why do you think these procedurals resonate with people, they have resonated with people for so long? 
because you have a fascination with, with law enforcement. You talked about your uncle being an FBI agent, but clearly the rest of us are deeply fascinated with the work that police officers and federal law enforcement do, agents do. I'm sorry, I lost track of the question. Why do you think that these shows are so popular? Resonate? Yeah, they resonate with I people. Procedurals have a unique place because, oh God, <laughs> Procedurals have a unique place in the landscape of television, and obviously I'm a huge fan because I love good storytelling, and I like closed-ended shows, which means that if you watch for an hour, you get a complete story with a beginning, middle, and an end. And it's been proven with both Law & Order and SVU that people don't care in marathons. They're now doing sort of theme marathons on SVU, but ION runs years. But for the most part, the episodes are interchangeable, and it's because they're, it's comfort food. It's designed to be comfort food. It's designed to, if you're sitting at home, you can tune in, and you'll, if you have an hour, you'll see a complete story. If you have four hours and are watching a marathon, you'll see four completely different stories, but they share a desire to take the viewer on a journey every week. And I think, uh, you know, I started out watching Dragnet and they've fascinated me ever since because it's, there's a black and white morality that is reassuring. And 98% of the time, the bad guys are taken down by the cops at the end of the episode. That was one of the things that made Law & Order infinitely interesting is when they'd lose a case in court because that disturbs the rhythm, which is good if you do it three or four times a season, but not if it happens too often. It's always bridging a gap in the audience's mind. Do you want more character to this? isn't really the show, but if you want a great story, they work. Um, one of the things that you have an incredible knack for is picking these incredible actors to bring your vision to the screen. And you've had like Academy Award winners like Diane Weist and, and United States Senators, <laughs> right? Like Fred Thompson. And um, for, for years when I was growing up and I was watching Law & Order, I thought like Adam Schiff was the district attorney <laughs> and I, I almost imagined that that's what they were like and that's how crusty they were. I didn't imagine like some of the smooth talkers that we've seen actually that exist in the real world, but um, what are you generally looking for when you're writing and developing these shows and... In the casting stage, yeah. you're always looking for the same thing which is actors who tell the truth who tell the truth through their art. Through their art, that's why you watch them. Yeah. Because there is, uh, with the good ones, uh, Stephen Hill sort of exemplified it for me when he was the only actor I actually have ever dealt with who consistently asked for fewer lines. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> Absolutely, I don't need all these words. And he was right. 
because he communicated, you knew who he was, he always had the right answer even when it was fair, make the deal. But he was the ultimate pragmatist in a system that wouldn't exist properly without it. And uh, he, it was in his eyes. He'd just say, you know, just watch my eyes. Wow, that's incredible. Um, Celia, what's it like to work in New York? I mean, that's another thing that Dick is known for, which is, you know, he revitalized essentially the, the, the filmmaking processes in New York City. And so many, I'm sure even, I mean, I know so many people who have been extras uh, in Law and Order, who you know, on street scenes, um, and of course, certain New Yorkers are like, "Oh my God, they're filming Law and Order again on my street. I gotta like deal with the parking issues." But what's it like to film in New York? This is my uh, third project, I think, to film in New York, and I've always loved it. I, you know, I lived here in my twenties, and that's such a formative time. So for me, um, I kind of got stuck in California for. 30-something years. Stuck. <laughs> well, I did. You know, I'd be on shows for six years and four years, yeah. and you have children, and you're in school, and you know how that goes. But I've, I've always, I just couldn't wait to, to come back to New York. It just feels like home. And filming here, I think, is just great, especially being out on the streets. Yeah. But you, it's interesting. Um, you've written a book about balancing being from a small town in Mississippi and living and working and making a life and a living in a big city. What have you discovered from Mississippi to New York and in between? Um, I, I thought that, um, I thought it would be interesting to explore, because I certainly felt that I wasn't the only person who had come from a small town and, uh, you know, went to either coast and lived in a big city, you know, uh, diametrically opposed to how you grew up. And that sense of community and belonging um, is something that that is so in your bones when you grow up that way. And how do you find that in these large um, metropolises, right? And I thought that was an interesting theme to explore. Um, and I, I realized, though, that it's all about people. It's just all about connecting with people and finding your tribe of people, and that's really what makes anywhere a home that in your family. So um, it took me uh, going back there and leaving to figure that out. Yeah, that's cool. Um, Jeremy, one of the things I'm always curious about, I mean, this is not your first Dick Wolf project. Um, so explain to the audience what it is. We've heard Dick talk about what he thinks is important for the show and for, for the actors. What, as an actor, as an artist, what is it about Dick that makes you come back, that made you want to come back to work with him? Uh, yeah, there's a lot. Um, but one of the other, other things that having, that what Dick did to, uh, for, for New York is, it, is uh, it really supported theater actors for 20 years. Uh, so many great actors were able to survive because they could you know, get a spot on, on, on one of the Law and Order shows. And, and so it was, it's, it's great to have you know, this new franchise back in and, and for, the, for the community of actors. Uh, but yeah, for me, um, I've told Dick this before, it's, it's, it's any project you're on you feel um, and it, definitely lately, there's so many projects out there, there's so many TV shows out there, that there is, uh, there is not 
enough um, creators or showrunners or whatever you call them, figureheads that can keep those ships upright and solid and sturdy. And I've been on a few of those, um, and it's 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 chaotic. It's it's not a it's not a place that you want to come to work every day. But with Dick's shows, there is a real stability there, um, and it's like a family. And uh, you know, the moment I signed back onto this one, uh, you know, I felt that because it trickles down from the top. So for me, just to be a part of a project that has that kind of uh, those bones, um, it's uh, it's 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 a good feeling. Yeah, it's fun to go back and watch, like, you can, you know, on stream some of the early episodes of Law & Order and find, like, people who had really small parts in Law & Order who then, like, blew up and became, like, a big deal in Hollywood because they had that opportunity to be on, on one of your shows. Yeah, that was fun to watch when we were on with, with, uh, with, um, with my, you know, Jesse or Anthony. Yeah. We would, you know, a new actor. We'd get five actors a day coming in and crying about something, and we'd be like, we'd bet on who would... Who would you know, we had some good ones, too. <laughs> I've said for years, if I'm sure people in this audience still go to the theater, but if you go to the theater and you run across an actor who does not have a Law & Order credit, it <laughs> means... Wonder, what what have they been up just, to their whole lives? He mean, no, it means he just got off the bus or he really sucks. <laughs> um, Emanate, one of the things, I mean, I got, had the pleasure of interviewing Zico and Missy early before the show started, and one of the things we talked about in our interview is the diversity that this cast was going to uh, bring to television, um, and that there would be not only women, but people of color, of different religions, um, in really important positions. Um, give us a sense of that for you as an actress and as a performer on the show, and what you're seeing as far as representation. You mean on our show? Yeah. Um, wow. Well, I mean, we could just talk about my role just yeah. even alone. I think one of the things that was so exciting at the beginning of this was I was playing a young black woman in an environment with a lot of smart um, people with positions of authority, but who respected her and listened to her and valued her because of her intelligence, which is not something that I saw in a lot of scripts. And I think, you know, even as a young girl, like I was a nerd like Kristen is and I loved school and got good grades but I didn't see somebody who looked like me who was on the television that I could relate to in that sense and I just think you know that's important you go to school and people might tease you for being the smarty pants and everybody wants to listen to everything you have to say and I think it's important to have somebody who looks like me who's represented in this extremely powerful and um, very highly valued way. I, it means a lot to me alone, so I can only I can only hope that it means the same to other people. And I've had a lot of people come up to me and say, "My daughter, you know, she loves your character," and you know, that's what you know means the most to me is like little girls who look like me who see me and they're like, "Oh, okay, I recognize that." That's I think. Yeah, and, and it's also interesting too because there have been you know people of color, women of color who've had roles, but to me, what I thought was really fascinating is you're not like a door kicker. <laughs> right, you're like the you're like the brains. You're yeah. like doing things that you know. A, a lot of people can kick doors in. Mm -hmm. A lot of people can chase leads mm -hmm. as good investigators. But it takes a special kind of person, a special level of intelligence, to be the person who's analyzing yeah. data. Yes, it does. Even for us reporters, like you know, the the reporter who can be a good uh, data driven reporter who can analyze data, financial balance sheets, um, court records. Those are not. It's you can interview. Men. 
what we call man on the street, that's generally easy, right? But it's the data and the part that's hard. And they're thinking in a different way. I mean, the intelligence analysts in the FBI are thinking on a different level than, um, I, I don't wanna I don't wanna say anything about the street agents, but they're just seeing the case from a different perspective. And I spoke when I uh, when we got to meet a couple of FBI agents, a meta an analyst, and I said, How do you know that you are like killing it at your job? And she said, When I can um, give my agent something that allows them to go on the street and further the case, that's when I'm having like an amazing day at work. And so I just try to bring that to the character and show that on the screen and say, look, these people are just as, she might not carry a gun, she might not be arresting people or putting people in handcuffs or interrogating them, but she's crucial. So, you know, don't sleep on the analyst. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Um, yeah, and Dick, I mean, just going back to even, you know, earlier in, in the franchise in Law & Order, you've always cast uh, people of color in really important positions. And I think the reason I want to, I'm curious about this is because, you know, we live in a country where there are a lot of people who sometimes do not feel an affinity towards law enforcement agents. Um, they, you know, a lot of people, and I've always sort of defined it by, it depends on what your interaction with law enforcement folks are when you're growing up, right? So, for example, for me, uh, I grew up wanting to be a police officer, so I never saw some of the things that some of my friends saw and felt. But when you watch Law and & Order and when you watch FBI and you see people who are assistant district attorneys or who have decision or who are police captains, was that a conscious decision on your part even back then be before all the things that we're talking about in 2019? Oh yeah, I mean, Apatha, one of the watershed moments in- uh, Peyton right? I heard somebody clapping. Law & Order was, I got a call after uh, this the third season, or almost at the end of the third season, from Warren Littlefield, and said, "Hi, the show's doing really well. I'm giving you a cancellation notice a year early, unless you put women in the show." And the first three years, it was six guys, and we brought in uh, Apatha and Jill Hennessy, mm -hmm. and they both both turned out to be very fortuitous hires. Apatha's, uh, there's a whole string of the longest running black actress in the history of television, uh, the longest running uh, cop in the same role in the history of television. It was a pretty good run. Jill obviously went on and got her own show, but it was a decision that was forced on us but I saw it as a huge opportunity to do something that there had never been a black woman police captain that anybody could even remember. Right. And to have her as, you know, the pivot in the first half of the show was enormously valuable. Look how many detectives she commanded over the years. <laughs> I mean, Law and Order was, there were six actors in the ensemble and 29 actors went through the show. And this is not Pearls Before Swine. I have to tell you, you and Anthony were still two of my top picks. And obviously, Aww. well, you see, you didn't mention the one that 
I knew him from, which was Six Feet Under. Which Six was, Feet Under, of course, yeah, of course. Um, and there are very few people over the years that I've, I've gone in and talked to Peter and Arthur, who are on the ground every day, saying that, you know, we, that guy, and it was when Six Feet Under was on, I said, that guy, we got to get someday. So it's been a pleasure. Yeah. It really has. Fantastic. Um, I'm going to, we're going to open it up to your questions um, in just a minute, but uh, before we do that, uh, FBI has been renewed for a second season. Congratulations. And there is a spin-off show that is happening. So can you tell us a little bit about it? It's called FBI. Microphone, Mr. Wolf. Sorry. That's <laughs> usually... <laughs> no, it's a. Uh, it's called FBI Most Wanted, and it's about uh, the Warrant Squad, which go after people on the FBI's most wanted list, and they're very successful at it. And I'm. I don't want to give the wrong statistic, so I won't say how many cases there have been. But they have, when they focus on an individual who is on the list, they've had a 96% closure rate. So. It's the unit that goes after literally the worst of the worst. And uh, Julian McMahon, who many of you may remember from Nip Tuck, is number one on the call sheet. So we're, we start shooting tomorrow. Excellent. Congratulations. Um, all right, so this first question, which is, I heard there's a spinoff in the works. I'm a great journalist, I just asked that question. <laughs> I knew it before you even wrote it. Um, this one though, I've always wanted to know this. How do you choose your locations? Who Googles some of the locations after you see them appear on uh, the black screen there? How do, you, how do you choose the locations, or do you? Uh, I, every single one. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, they're, look, when we've been doing this continuously in New York, had, series on for it's coming up on 30 years now and the location departments many of whom have come from one of the other shows are unabashedly certainly the best in New York that uh, that was one of the things that everybody was desperate to save when Law and Order uh, shut down were the location files. <laughs> That's hilarious. The thing that we couldn't <laughs> let go. Um, Jeremy, this one is for you. Uh, who is the best guest star you've worked with on a Dick Wolf show? Um, what's that dude's name? <laughs> uh, you know, he was in Star Star, War, Star Wars and Girls and Tall, Lanky oh, Dude. Adam. Oh, Adam, Adam uh, Driver. Driver. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he, Adam he was driver on Law and Order. He was. He was an episode before. He had just done one weird little movie that I watched after he worked on us because I was impressed. He was a very strange dude, like uh, sweet, but kind of just had a lot going on. And it was the one scene where me and Anthony always had a Anthony always has a very good time and, and brings a lot of energy and is super fun to work with. But uh, when certain actors were in there, they kind of take over the space with the, just whatever they're, whatever is going on with them. And he was one of those guys that we were just kind of quiet watching, not sure what was going on with him. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, I don't know, after he left, I was, I was really impressed with him and I went and watched that thing. And 
And so that's the one that comes to mind. But there are a ton. There, there were uh, there were a lot of people, a lot of guys, a lot of women uh, and men that, uh, that also I haven't heard from again that were really impressive and and uh, turned in some amazing work. But uh, that was that was a real joy. I don't I don't get that as much on this one because I'm in the office a lot. Um, uh, but uh, but that was a, that was one of the the highlights of working on Law and Order as a detective. Um, Celia, can I ask you about Hope Village real quickly and what that oh, is? Yeah. Yeah. Thank Tell you. the audience what that is because it's, it's a sort of fascinating charity. Um, and, and just to describe where the inspiration for it came from. Um, I, I have uh, just a real soft spot in my heart for children. And this is a, uh, a home for abused and neglected kids that I founded back in the year 2000 in Meridian, Mississippi, where I'm from. Um, there were two brothers at this emergency shelter in town, and they were, you know, nine and and twelve, and they there was nowhere in the state to keep them together that had room to keep them together, and they had already been split up from their sisters. Their sisters were in different homes in different parts of the state. The parents' rights were terminated, and there was something about these two little boys that just I just pulled on my heartstrings. The kind they they had such. A, two African-American boys that had such sparkle. And uh, in Mississippi, um, I knew that if you, if you, if they, if somebody could take them right then and, and really help foster um, their well-being and possibility, they, these would be the most amazing, productive kids. Well, they were, they were about to be sent to two different homes, and they were like that. They were all they had left in the world, and being one of four children, I couldn't imagine that. You, you, you've been ripped from everything you know, and particularly your brothers and sisters. So our mandate was to keep siblings together, and um, that's what we've done, no matter, even if it's six kids. And um, for me, it's, it's the most rewarding thing I've ever done and near and dear to my heart and where all my time and energy goes when I'm not working with Dick Wolf. That's awesome. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, Ebony, I have a question because uh, your parents were not born in this country. No, they weren't. My parents were not born in this country. Mm -hmm. um, for years and years and years, I had to explain to my mother, you know, she would say, uh, you know, writing is a hobby. It's not a job. <laughs> and I would, I would say, you know, writing is a hobby. It's called journalism. Yes, 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 yes. But you need to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. I think a lot of, of, of uh, first-generation Americans um, have parents who think in this country to be successful, you've got to be a lawyer, an engineer, or a doctor, and everything else is a hobby or something that you do to, you know, waste time. And um, how did you, when you decided that you wanted to be an actor, what did you tell your parents and how did they react? Oh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I decided I wanted to be an actor when I was four. It was oh, really wow. <laughs> my mother's fault because, you know, she would take me to see Broadway shows on, like, special occasions. So the week before my fourth birthday, she always tells the story that way, um, she took me to see Beauty and the Beast on Broadway, and I was like, oh, adults sing and dance on stage, and that's a job, so I'm gonna do that job. And I think, you know, I stuck with it my whole life, like, I'm gonna be an actor, I'm gonna be a singer, and my mom, I think, just sort of entertained me, but I was a very smart little girl, and she figured I would grow out of that, and I would go to school and be in the sciences or be a lawyer. And when we got to like college application time and she realized that I was serious and I wouldn't give it up, she really tried to convince me that I could act 
or sing on the weekends as a hobby. <laughs> and I would say to her, because she loves Sydney Poitier, I said, what if somebody told Sydney Poitier nice. <laughs> that he should just act on the weekends, mom? And she'd be like, well, you know, you should be a lawyer, because then you could act in the courtroom. And I said, I'll be an actor. That's and a I'll great, a that's a great response from a parent. <laughs> you can act in the courtroom. Yes. Love it. <laughs> I said, I'll just, I'll be a lawyer on TV. Mom. So I just, I was, I was determined. She couldn't, she couldn't fight me down. That's, That's so great. Um, so, okay, let me throw this one to Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy, do you find yourself, this is kind of a, you know, this is an esoteric question, but do you find yourself analyzing strangers because of your role on FBI? Like looking at people suspiciously, I guess, and wondering what they're up to at the salad bar with an aerosol can. <laughs> <laughs> that I would worry about. No, but uh, I think that's one of the thing, uh, things our show does well is, um, is, and one of the things that's interesting about being in law enforcement of all kinds is you're dealing with some real messed up people and then you, you go home to your own life and you have to try to find um, some kind of balance there. And, um, and I think uh, Missy and OA... Um, play that very well, play sort of the sensitivity, the, um, what that does to a person. And it does change your outlook on, on, um, on everything in your own life. Um, I have a friend who's an ER doctor, and everywhere we go, he's looking around for accidents, because all day long he sees these horrible things. So, it's, um, so I, I, I'm, I'm, sure it's, I'm sure it's a challenge in real life to have that, um, to have that outlook on, and to be constantly reminded uh, of how messed up people can be and how bad people can be. And, um, uh, and so I think it takes a certain constitution. And personally, I don't know if I, I could do it in real life, but, uh, but I can definitely think about it and, and portray it as an actor. And, and I, I think it's, uh, it's interesting to play. And again, I, just, I, I give a lot of credit to the writers and to um, and to the other actors for sort of telling that story that it does it does pay a toll you know it does take a toll I mean and uh, and yeah yeah that's really interesting although it does make me think of that story and I don't know if it's true or not but I read somewhere years ago that uh, when Dustin Hoffman was acting with Lawrence Olivier in Marathon Man he said something like you know I spent like three weeks starving myself to get into this role and Olivier said well you could also try acting which is another <laughs> in other words like yeah you play this you know hotshot FBI agent but you're, you're acting and you know you're, oh, yeah it's <laughs> way, way easier than actually doing the, the right. FBI job yeah um, so Dick, uh, one of the things, I, we've been giving a lot of love to New York City because this is a New York City crowd, but I guess there's somebody here from the Windy City or somebody who's a big fan of the Chicago series, uh, right? There you go, there we go. So Chicago Fire, Chicago Med, Chicago PD. Um, so the question is, why Chicago? Because we had been, the company had been shooting here at that point for uh, 28 years continuously, four or five shows. Um, we had used every location <laughs> in New York that was recognizable. And I, my roommate from boarding school was in, lived outside of Chicago. And I went there for the first time when I was about 15 or 16. And I thought it was a great city. I mean, they sailed and it was right on the lake and it, it seemed like a really 
nice place. And I went back and was literally blown away. You take the river tour, which goes down the river, and you, it's an architectural tour. And it unquestionably has the greatest modern architecture in America. Uh, I got in a lot of trouble because we had the 100th PD, the 100th uh, episode of PD press event in Chicago, and I was there, and a reporter asked me, what do you uh, think of Chicago? I said, I love Chicago. It's like a cleaner, politer New York with <laughs> slightly heavier people. And I oh. said, that's certainly something that doesn't bother me. I think the portions of the restaurants are fabulous. <laughs> and within 10 minutes, it was online, Dick Wolf comes to Chicago and salts residents. So <laughs> I still stand by my previous statement. I, they, I love the way they eat. <laughs> That's great. Um, so Celia, this is a question, I guess. Um, it's, a ge it's a general question, but it, I think it would be interesting for the audience to know. Uh, how long does it take to film an episode? And specifically, I guess, how long does it take to film your scenes? Um, you're here quite a bit, even though I think you live in L.A., right? No, I'm based here now. You're I wasn't here. kidding. This is like home. Oh, this me. is home for you when now. When I'd film in New York, I saw it as a, I mean, L.A., I saw it as a place to work, not to live, and I'd hop on the plane, I'd come back to New York. Oh, or I'd what? go to see my mom and daddy in Mississippi. <laughs> so, I'm no, I'm based here now. Okay. Yeah, very happily. Okay. I have no idea how many days it takes to shoot this show. I'm very confused. <laughs> we, we often shoot two shows at one time. You mean like you'll, you, you'll come in and you'll do, you'll do a bunch of scenes for one show and then you'll like do a costume change or whatever and then do another we show? We might, or the next day we'll do a different show. Wow. Um, how many days do we shoot, Dick? It varies. <laughs> yeah. He's not going to say. It's supposed to shoot in eight days. In eight days. But look, to achieve a certain level of quality, and the studios actually even understand this, that the first season of a show, we do a lot of reshooting that you look at and you know, eh, it doesn't quite work. And you look at the expense of reshooting and go, oh, this is too expensive. And then you realize because it's in our collective brain that we're looking at stuff and becoming more dissatisfied with the stuff that doesn't work. And we end up having to pick it up. And uh, I'm, Celia, you should be glad we've done up to three shows at the same time, <laughs> picking up pieces. That's great. That's Ice-T, actually, who has a very unique viewpoint on almost everything that we were doing, a panel, and somebody said, well, how do you like the crossovers? He said, the crossovers, what do you mean? I say, well, you went to Chicago on a show, he said, on, to be on Chicago PD, went, yeah. He said, you know, it's a plane ride, and you gotta get off and then you go in there and you don't know anybody, <laughs> and they say, stand here, say these lines. So I do it, but I really love being in New York and <laughs> deal with that stuff. Um, That's great. But it's, look, all of this stuff, it's, it's, I wish we could run shows that, you know, they, they only shot 10 hours, eight days, and out, and I look forward to that happening. <laughs> look forward to that day. I can tell you, I did, um, 
I mean, occasionally they'll have reporters play reporters on TV shows, and I did one for um, uh, the Amazon show with um, what's uh, the Tom Clancy series that is shooting. Um, the Jack Ryan. Jack Ryan. And I was playing a reporter, but I'm, my, my father is French, and so French is my mother language, so the, uh, my agent says, hey, they want you to be a French reporter. And I'm like, okay. And so they send me the script, and it's not long, but it's all in French. And so I get there at like, they tell me to get there at like 8 o'clock, and 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm still sitting there for like this like four-sentence thing that I have to do. And um, then they finally say, okay, Vlad, like, come on in. And I go in, and they take photographs of my cufflinks, and a lot of weird stuff going on. And I have no idea what's happening. There's like a million people all around, and they say, sit at this desk, and, uh, and I read this the copy a couple of times, you know, and then I do it, and then they go, okay, thanks very much. And I'm like, is that it? <laughs> they're like, yeah. I'm like, you're probably not gonna use that, right? He's like, oh no, I have to use it. Like, we, we, we need this scene. And I was like, okay, and it took like eight hours. It was like two minutes of like talking. Is that like, There's I don't know. There's a lot of waiting around on a, on a television <laughs> set. It's just yeah. part of the deal. Hurry up and wait. Yeah, hurry up and wait, yeah, it was pretty fun. Um, People are always like, can I come visit? I'm like, it's, it's so not boring, as much right? fun as you think. <laughs> oh, it's so great. Um, I got paid well, though. It was like a lot of money for like 20 minutes of work, well, eight hours of my time, but like, yeah, it was pretty uh, not too shabby. Um, Ebene, uh, if you could be, this is a question from the audience, if you could be any position in the FBI, what would it be and why? She wants my job. You're right, you want to be <laughs> the boss. <laughs> I was just gonna say I'd like to be the boss. <laughs> Um, <laughs> who would I be and why? I mean, I really love playing an intelligence analyst. I feel like if I were choosing in real life, I might go into that just because I love being the smarty pants in the room, but I don't want to be, you know, that to be like a, you know, cheap answer. So I would say I would like to be a street agent only because I think um, interviewing and or interrogating people seems like such an interesting art to me. And I would love to test that out. Yeah. Yeah. You were so great in that episode where you went undercover oh, thank on you. the streets. <laughs> I was I was doing my best to play somebody who wasn't too great at it, but you know, still like keeping cool. Keeping yeah. <laughs> that could be in your future. <laughs> yeah. Hint, hint. She, yeah, she knows something it. that you don't know. She already did it in the pilot. She saved three hundred people's true. life. That's true. Very true. <laughs> um, so this is st still staying with production, uh, Dick. Uh, this question asks, um, do you devise the basic story for each episode, or is this left to the writers? It's, uh, it's left to our uh, really incredible writers. I mean, we've got right now five shows on the air, and I assure you I would not be writing scripts or they wouldn't be on. It's... it's <laughs> And a lot of the people, the thing that is amazingly satisfying is that uh, a lot of the people have been together for a long time. Renee, who I mentioned, started as a staff writer on Law & Order in the first season, so we've been working together almost constantly. It's coming up on 30 years next year. And most of the people that are in senior positions, or a lot of them, have been there more than 10, more than 15, more than 20 years. Ricky, who is running FBI right now and came in under very difficult positions, has been on various shows, including Law and Order, for the past 15 years. So 
everybody does have a shorthand for catastrophe when things are really <laughs> going south. Um, we've known each other, all of us, for a long time. So the, we were gonna get, we're gonna get through all these because there's only two left, and so these are the last two questions for the night, um, but I think we, we, we can get through these. Um, what was your reasoning in selecting Missy and Zico for lead roles? Both, the, the question says both are unknown to American audiences, but I don't think that Missy, Missy has been. No, Missy was uh, the lead on Rookie Blue. Right, Rookie Blue, yeah. For exactly. six years. Yeah, so, but, 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 but what did you see in them that you liked? Well, Missy has a, just a very strong persona. That the first time I met her, I had seen Rookie Blue two or three times. Uh, remembered, oh yeah, she was the lead, but she was brought in, and I really uh, look. I'll tell you, it's a it's a very strange story. It's the only actor I've ever had to offer the same part to three times. Oh, wow. That. She turned it down and turned it down, and I said, "This is because she was getting married, which she's now done quite successfully." <laughs> um, she didn't know if she wanted to be in New York, uh, but once she came in, she went all in, and she has got a really good sense of authority. I mean, the the closest actor that has that type of female aggressiveness but sensitivity is Mariska mm. the, in that kind of point position. Uh, Zico was, to me, one of the best finds of the past five years for us. That To find a guy who a lot of girls think is A, very good looking, is six five and speaks four languages or something. Yeah. Pretty good get. Yeah, not too shabby. And especially now with his knowledge of uh, uh, beyond Arabic, but the Quran and Muslim identity and everything else is a very, very unique character right now on television. For sure. Um, last question is, uh, since the show is filmed in New York City and we all live in New York City, is there any way to let your fans know in advance where you were, will be taping so we can be extras in crowd scenes? <laughs> God, no. <laughs> Sorry. But not in the card. Um, thank you all for coming. Oh, one more. Okay. Yes. Okay, sure, sure. Wow, this one's great. Okay, of course. Um, so, the, okay, the first one is today. How do you create such... 3D, three-dimensional characters, three-dimensional characters, um, and how do you create such strong characters that it can also be vulnerable? So your characters are three-dimensional, they're strong, but they're also vulnerable. It's, I, it goes back to what we were talking about 20 minutes ago, that I don't think that character is successfully doled out in huge doses and the reason that you're it's not that you're rewarded for regular viewing but you are I mean it's one of the things that if I took a law and order fan and asked them 
how much do you know about Jeremy's character? And I don't know, except for the scene with your brother, the suicide uh, one, that there was anything that you just sort of weighed your emotions bare. But uh, people out there can tell you a lot about that character because it came out, you know, every seventh episode you get just the colonel. And it, it, the first season with you and Anthony, when the audience didn't know either of you and there was real tension was some of the my favorite moments in the show but three-dimensional strong i have to say after the pilot that's the incredible writers that we've had consistently on the shows over the years yeah yeah, um, I'll, I'll ask. I'll rephrase your question a little bit differently. This, this final bit. Um, if you are a struggling actor or an actress, um, given that there have been so many people who have come up through Law and Order, um, are what is the pathway to even getting a small, tiny speaking role on on those shows? <laughs> Get an agent. There you go. <laughs> no, it's the ultimate. Two-headed snake. You can't get a job without an agent. You can't get an agent without a job. Everybody goes through the same thing. Uh, or 99% of the acting community goes through that same journey. But you can't get in the door without an agent. You know, it's not really discussable when you think. Look, on law on the three law and orders alone, the last count there were more than 35,000 speaking roles. Wow, 35,000 speaking. Yeah, it's like a small town. Sorry. <laughs> oh, this is, man, I might need my glasses for this. Um, do you think it is in, uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> but um, first of all, let me thank the audience for uh, coming out. I appreciate it. This has been a wonderful night. Um, and. Pictures of Dick 20 years ago? Did you take them? I took them. Oh, my God. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, I want to thank uh, Mr. Dick Wolf. Thank you very much, sir, for coming out. My pleasure. Seal Award, Jeremy Sisto, Ebene Noel. Thank you all. And thank you for coming out and supporting, of course, the 92nd Street Y, as always. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org. <laughs>